Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Tommy. And I'm Braden. And one too many or one too few. Um, to clarify, like in certain situations, you would like you'd rather have too much money and too little debt. Like that's obvious. But in some situations, um, and I had this thought with regards to like sprinting and jump training and things like that. If you do one, too few reps and you don't hit that peak, then you're not getting the full benefit. If you do one too many, that's potentially like pulling down your performance a little bit. So both sides of it are a little bit negative. And I guess the question is, in which direction are you comfortable being wrong? I'd rather be one too few. Interesting. Interesting. Why is that? Uh, there's, I, I'm going to paraphrase this quote from Dan Paff. And he, it's something to the extent of he'd rather be a mile short than an inch over. Uh, when he was talking about like training loads with people and mm. the injury risk. Mm. Right. So everyone like, you know, we're talking sprinting, we're talking jumping, things like that. You always get hurt on the last one. Well, cause that's when you, you stop if you get hurt. <laughs> yeah. And so I think the idea behind this, he'd rather be a mile short than an inch over is I would rather leave a little bit on the table and have the person be healthy. than go just a touch too far. And then you ruin something. And then that person's on the DL now as a result. So if you're talking a training perspective in terms of like volume or pushing the intensity and things like that, I would rather, I'd rather be one too few and do less better than do one extra one that maybe we didn't need to do. And then something bad happens. Interesting. That, I mean, that's a good, that's a good uh, argument there. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, my thought was always, if you, if you do one too many, you know, that you hit the peak, but if you do one too few, like, is that actually one too few or like, is that four too few? You know? Oh, like, did you actually get to where you want, like yeah, the output and, that you wanted? Yeah. And then in this scenario, like you're assuming yes, but in reality, you don't actually know, like, you know, you hit the peak if you start to slow down, but you if you're still getting faster, you don't know if you hit the peak or not, you know, that's also a good point. Mm -hmm. So that was my thought process. Um, but with regards to training, I mean, safety is always important. So that's a, that's a, a very good way to think about it. So, yeah, I, I think that would be, that would be my gut instinct is to do one too few rather than one too many. Mm -hmm. Cause I'd rather have that person, be able to live to lift another day mm -hmm. and be like, Hey, we, we did five today. We maybe could have done six, but we got a good session and you stayed healthy. Mm -hmm. We can come back tomorrow or two days from now, whenever it is and, and take mm -hmm. care of business again. Do you think that that thought process would apply to other areas? Like not just training. Um, so I guess it's the, all the examples are really like specific, but I have, I have two other examples. Um, so if you're baking and like you, 
you don't necessarily have the recipe in front of you or measuring cups or whatever, but like you eyeball, this is a good amount of flour, but you're not quite sure. Are you more likely to add a little bit more or take a little bit away? So that's one example. The other example could be like, if you're studying for something um, and you could study, like, are you more likely to not study quite enough or study a little bit too much and be like overtired or, start to get confused or something like that. Oh, the study one, I always did the minimum. Yeah. Okay. Same. Like I would rather go to bed. Like if you compare the classic, like somebody trying to pull an all nighter to cram all the info mm-hmm. and then write the test in the morning. I was always the person that I'll do what I can up until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to bed. I'm going to get my eight or nine hours mm-hmm. and I'm going to write it in a good place tomorrow. Mm-hmm. rather than, oh, I stayed up all night trying to cram the information. That doesn't work for me. Yeah, the baking I, one, I don't know, man. Baking's a science. Yeah, it, well, Baking's yeah, a science, cooking's an art. And yeah. You might just throw the whole thing out if you don't have a recipe. <laughs> yeah, does it matter with baking? Like if you put in a little too much flour or not enough, wouldn't it screw it up either way, I think? I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. Like that's the whole question is like, which which direction are you comfortable screwing it up in, you know? I don't know if that applies. The problem is I don't know if that applies for baking. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. Cause at I least mean, with like the studying example in one of those cases, the person who pulls the all nighter probably has a better understanding of the info. Like they've seen, they've had the yeah. chance to see more of it, Yeah, but it's at the downside of maybe not being physically and mentally feeling great because you got a terrible sleep yeah. versus the other way it's inverse is where baking, if you, have too little of an ingredient and it turns out like crap, but you have too much of an ingredient and it turns out like crap is either the, like, do you want to eat those cookies or the cake or whatever it was you were baking afterwards? Maybe not. Yeah. I guess potentially they're equally bad. Uh, I mean, you would say like in one direction, it's maybe more dry and in the other direction, it's maybe more like undercooked or whatever. Um, still not appealing though. No, it's not. I mean, it's not. Was, none of those are jumping out at me like, oh, yeah, I would like to eat a really dry, you know, piece of bread or cookie. Yeah. Or, no, oh, I, you know, maybe an undercooked cookie wouldn't be the end of the world because cookie dough tastes pretty good. That's true. But like a cake or something like that, if it was undercooked, it would be like, uh, this is kind of gross. Yes. Um, this, Yeah, I agree. The studying one, I think, makes more sense, is more applicable anyway. Um, I was always kind of the same way, not necessarily like the all nighter thing, but, um, I would always get to the point where like, I've went through everything once or twice. I have a reasonable grasp on the information. I know I'm going to pass. I'll probably get like a 70, 75, um, for me to get an, for me to get into the eighties, I know I'm going to have to put in like another five or six hours of studying and that's just not worth it to me. So I'm comfortable where I am and we'll just let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. I was the same way. Yeah. I also felt like too, if you didn't get a good night's sleep, like you might've looked at all the info and then you're just too tired to try to recall it and remember what it was. Yeah, that's right. As well, at least if you spent less time studying, you know, the things that you studied, you remember those. And then the things that you didn't Mm -hmm. study, you're like, well, if a question comes up on that, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, you, presumably sat through all the classes anyway so like you've seen it all you have seen it all and exactly 
if you're more alert than maybe like subconsciously your brain's like it's this one you feel like it's this one and especially you if you write the exam in the same room that you had the class in and you get the contextual learning effect did that did you notice that helped you i haven't i don't remember that helping me i that. haven't noticed but research has shown if you learn something uh they what was that study and they did where people had to memorize a list of words and some people were underwater and some people were above water and then they had them switch. And then the people who remembered the words underwater and or learned the words underwater initially had an easier time recalling all the words underwater. It was something super bizarre like that. <laughs> I've um, never heard of that. That's crazy. Because I remember for motor learning, our prof was like, oh, I hope that being in a different classroom doesn't throw you off because of all the contextual learning we talked about. And I was like, oh, thanks a lot. Now I'm going to think about that. And I'm not going to remember as much for this test. <laughs> oh man that's funny no i've never heard of that so but, of that. but i don't know if it's real or not and i did all right in that class so i mean it I must be writing in it, a different room hurt me that much but if they studied it then it it must be but i think the environment can give you because like your senses are working all all the time right so like um like a smell will bring you back to like a specific place or like i get this like a song reminds me of a specific time or activity um or whatever you know so if you have like if you see a word on the page and and then you're like oh yeah i was looking over here when the prof said that and then you exactly. look there it's like oh yeah now i remember what he said you know? yeah now you're like oh this is brilliant and you start writing it down you're like i'm gonna get this question right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but yeah in terms of training i would say i'd rather do one too few than one too many personally yeah, I think that's smart. If you're talking about injury risk, that's definitely, definitely smart. Um, I always remembered learning, like Stu talked about it with some Russian lifter in the 80s, probably. Um, and, He's always a Russian. <laughs> well, I, and I feel like I've heard you talk about it or somebody else, maybe like with regards to Charlie Francis and uh, Ben Johnson, um, that like with fast stuff or powerful stuff, whenever like you don't necessarily need to have a rep scheme you just do it and as long as it's good then you'd keep doing it and if it's bad then you stop um so in that sense it's like you go until you slow down or you go until you don't throw it as far or whatever um so that was kind of the thought process that i took forward but um anyway that feeds in nicely to what we're talking about today oh big time plyos part two slash the shock method part one because we didn't say that last time yeah well that was one thing we were talking about is that yeah if anyone went and looked up the stuff from verkashansky the plyometrics was coined by i think it was an american dude um i think his first name was wilt or his last name was wilt or something i don't know the guy's name but someone went over and saw verkashansky's training and then brought the term plyometrics back to north america which is why we tend to call it plyometrics but if you read his original work he called it the shock method so shock method and the plyos we are talking about same thing do you think they still call it the shock method in russia probably and i mean his daughter still refers to it as like when she gives presentations and stuff like that still calls it the shock method mm. so i can't remember where i read it it might have been in super training or it might have been in another book where I think that Verkashansky talked about 
the shock method not being called that in North America, because in English, when we hear the word shock, we think of like electricity, which then had nothing to do with mm-hmm. what was actually being done in the training. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As sense. where with the Russian language, then maybe it makes more sense. And that wouldn't be the first time that something written in Russian that got translated over to English. There was like, I guess some miscommunication or confusion because you're moving it from one language to another. I don't know if that's true or not, if that's why the coined term of plyometrics kind of happened here. And we didn't refer to it as the shock method because it actually had nothing to do with being electrocuted. So then we'd be like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we calling it that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I buy that. I think that makes sense. Um, the shock method being the name of it makes sense, I think, because it's like it's such an abrupt like impact, you know, yeah. and, like if you think about shocks in a in a car or a bike or whatever, like it's absorbing the impact, you know, so it's it makes sense to it, call it that. But I, I think when I have talked to people more recently about the shock method they were like i th- i think i remember people being like is that where you get electrocuted like obviously it's not that but. <laughs> yeah you jolt them with electricity and see if they're supercharged for the next movement yeah potentiation nice that's good <laughs> um but i thought but yeah. that would be good just to clarify that we're probably oh. going to keep calling it plyometrics because we're north american and that's the phrase we grew up on but Mm-hmm. Shock method is the same thing. So if you're reading anything from Verkashansky or, you know, a different part of the world and you hear shock method, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's the same mm-hmm. thing effectively. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're talking about, yeah, plyometrics with impact, like eccentric landing impact to take off. Yeah, the rebound. Uh, rebound, exactly. Um, and we talked about on the last one, jumps where you don't do that are not plyometrics <clears throat> um, at least not in this not according this to the shock method yeah yeah yeah. or it wouldn't fall under the category of the shock method yeah because there's no rebound action yes yeah um yeah and so we were going to get into the adaptations first anyway um we talked about the stretch shortening cycle last time um as the big one, but there's obviously a lot that comes with it. Um, yeah. So what, uh, what do you, what do you think is the most important? I, or do you want to go over that, the stretch shortening cycle again? Well, uh, I, th- I don't know. I was going to talk a little bit here about like the, like the neurological function. Mm. Cause I think the nervous system plays a big role in this as well. Right. It's like, we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about, like the muscle and the tendon, mm-hmm. right? And the way that the muscle and the tendon interact with landing on the ground and then jumping back up, right? That the muscle tends to move a little bit less and it allows the tendon to stretch and react a little bit like an elastic band, right? You stretch it mm-hmm. out, it has energy, and then you let go of it and it snaps back and yep. gives you a bunch of like return in whatever direction you're going but there's like a big neurological component mm-hmm. of that as well, right. To allow the muscle to, to function. And so like Verkashansky highlighted some of the stuff, right? Like, you know, the coordination of firing of the muscle, 
right? And that has to come from the nervous system. So if someone's landing now on the ground and then jumping back up, you get this voluntary and involuntary action. So the involuntary action being the tendon, right? Like the tendon stretches, loads, and then snaps back. Maybe snaps back is not the right word because the tendon stays intact, <laughs> shouldn't explode. Um, but th that's a, like an involuntary action. Mm. You're it not loads controlling it. Exactly. It loads and explodes based on just the, the movement as were the voluntary action of some of the propulsive force of the muscle contracting. That's what your brain. So if you drop off of a box and jump up, that's the part of your brain that's actively thinking about, Oh, as soon as I touch down on the ground, I got to bounce back up toward mm. the ceiling. And that obviously if you train this method, it's a novel stimulus in some cases. So you need to practice pairing the voluntary and the involuntary action together upon the takeoff for the jump to actually make it the most effective. So there's a bit of a practice effect or a learning effect, which we've talked about in almost every training method mm -hmm. that you're going to get. But I think it's important to highlight that because you wouldn't want to do this type of stuff with someone for a week or two. And then you're like, Oh, they're not getting it. And then just give up on it because there is going to be a learning effect for them to figure out the timing of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think I did mention on the, the last one, maybe I didn't, but honestly, um, it was, we recorded so long ago that that's right. I have a hard time remembering what we actually talked about in the last one. And I mean, we released it a while ago, so maybe the audience forgot to, um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully but, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So with, um, there was a paper that I read that with like relatively untrained people are at least unfamiliar with jump training or this type of jump training. Um, that prior to that, like impact, there was a level of inhibition, um, in like the, like the ankle joint muscles, supporting muscles. Um, I don't remember how high up the chain they measured, but um, yeah, there was inhibition. And then we talked about like the Golgi tendon versus muscle spindle, how it can kind of lead to everything um, relaxing. So you don't hurt yourself. Um, but yeah, I believe it was like one to 200 milliseconds that this inhibition lasted um, to the point where you're not able to rebound at all. Cause you don't have any activation when you hit the ground, like you hit the ground and then now you're jumping. Right. Um, but over time and you don't even need to be doing like the depth jumps, like the true plyometrics, like just the landing aspect of it can help like override the nervous system or that aspect of it anyway. And like teach the nervous system to like pre-activate so that you're ready for the landing. Um, and I imagine that if you are intentional with how you're trying to do that, then you'll speed that up. But I, the impression I got from the paper was that if you just, like literally jump off of boxes that will be enough to get this pre-activation going. Um, so yeah, there is, there is the learning effect, whether it's, it doesn't necessarily need to be conscious, I think, but it's necessary for the, the nervous system. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with, with that. The, yeah. The pre-tension is probably where you're going to see that big difference because mm -hmm. if someone's not creating tension before they touch down on the ground, well, what did you say? A one to 200 millisecond window. That's like that the entire were, thing. That's the entire. Yeah. So if <laughs> you're not prepared in that amount of time, well, that was the window of time you were afforded to do a, 
a true plyometric rebound because it has to be so quick off the ground. Um, so I, I think that's important to highlight because yeah, if you're not prepared with tension before you hit the ground, well, you can't really use true plyometrics because you've, you've lost that window of time. Well, and it doesn't, yeah. And it doesn't allow you, if you're not pre-tensioned, it doesn't allow you to use the stretch shortening cycle at all, because like we just talked about, the muscle needs to be contracted for the tendon to stretch. And if you don't have activation in that muscle, it's not contracted. It's going to like your muscle will be fully stretched as soon as you hit the ground. And then the tendon doesn't get to stretch at all. Yeah. Cause that the length change in the unit of the tendon and the muscle, the length change is going to come from the muscle mm-hmm. rather than the tendon. And then we lose. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the, like, it, it's important to, to look at that, like sort of the learning curve or the, it, it gives you an appreciation of why the learning curve is there. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's going to be true with any method that you use that there's going to be a learning effect. Mm-hmm. But I think that nicely kind of highlights why there's the learning the learning curve that there, that there is, is that, like you said, someone has to learn how to develop pretension mm-hmm. or preparing for contact on the ground before they can actually effectively perform this stuff. So, and if you know why that's the case, then it's easy. Like you said, you can do some depth landings mm-hmm. and that'll help with that. And then you can go into depth jumps rather than just trying to let's do this plyo. Oh, it's not working. Okay. This stuff doesn't work. And then you throw it out the window. Yeah. You never really gave it a real chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, another more neural, I mean, potentially more neural um, adaptation that I found was increased force production in general. Um, I did find, well, in uh, a presentation, I think that Natalie Verkashansky gave based on Yuri's work, um, oh, where yeah. she was talking about the, they found, I think it was between 55 and 75 centimeters was like the optimal height for depth jumps. Um, and then whether or not that's the right range, it might be more like 40 to 60 or something like that. Um, Probably depends on the person. I'm sure it does depend on the person, but wherever that optimal range is for the person towards the lower end, she was saying more speed, that elastic rebound type stuff. Um, and towards the higher end was more towards maximal strength type stuff it's obviously very fast short window maximal strength but um that was what they said and then i found other papers that supported depending on how you um do your depth jumps like i I did mention the one where uh they were trying to like one group was limiting the amount of knee flexion so trying to have like all of the rebound happening at the ankle Um, And then the other group was trying to achieve a certain amount of knee flexion. It was 80 to 90 degrees. So getting pretty deep into it. Um, And the minimal knee flexion group. So everything happening at the ankle improved their like gastroc MVC, a meaningful amount anyway, Um, where the other group did not improve it a meaningful amount. Um, they weren't able to measure anything higher up the chain than, you know, everything below the knee. But I imagine that they would have improved their knee flexor MBC 
if that was possible to measure. So that is another uh, adaptation that you're going to be getting from it, depending, of course, how you coach the drill, how you set it up. But it's it's there to be had wherever you want it to be had. Yeah, we can touch a little bit later on the like the specific, like some of the different ways you can train biomagically yeah. to get different outcomes. But that goes back to like the neural output. Right. Like you said, you're, you're doing something at such a high level or a high intensity that you can improve, especially if you're on like a little bit of the longer side with the contact time that you can really get the neural drive or the ability for the brain to create a lot of excitation in the muscles. You can really improve that ability with, with that type of work. Right. Because then if you spend a little longer on the ground, the tendon's not doing quite as much work. So it's not as involuntary. It's a little more voluntary. Right. And that's where you can really get the brain to, to fire in a powerful way to give you an explosive movement in whatever direction you're trying to go. Well, I think too, like, I mean, if you're measuring MBC, it's going to be an isometric contraction. Um, if that's how you're choosing to measure like your force output, where a lot of the activity that the muscle is having is going to be an isometric contraction in these types of movements anyway. Um, and another, it was, this was also in the, in the presentation that Natalie had, um, it was hypothesized anyway, that like why these things are so, uh, effective is because it, um, it like emphasizes the eccentric component so much more. Um, because the eccentric is so much more aggressive because you're coming down into like this, like with speed into an impact. Um, and like we talked about in the, like the hypertrophy one, like there's so much more damage that happens and you're able to produce more force in an eccentric contraction. Um, especially with the fast eccentrics when we talked about that a little yeah. bit, which this falls 100% in the fast eccentric big time. category big time so it was hypothesized that like the nervous system perceives an eccentric contract con eccentric contraction as more of a threat and if you're adding this much speed and force into it it's even more of a threat um so that it actually like there were uh like emg studies to indicate that it the brain like maps them or like prepares for them or like the nervous system activates them differently than concentric contractions um, which I found to be really, really interesting from like a, just, yeah, like an output, like a neural learning kind of perspective as well. Yeah, I would like completely agree with you on, on that one that there's, yeah, the fast eccentrics bring so many potential benefits that you get that in this type of training. So then, yeah, the nervous system adaptations you get as a result of that are, are tremendous. And then on the other side, this, um, I might sound a little bit confused with this because I'm not a neurophysiology expert by any means, but there was also talk about the, the Renshaw cells in the nervous system playing a role and uh, Renshaw cells, I think they're kind of confusing and I can never remember exactly. I remember writing a little paper on my master's in this for one of the classes, it was like a seminar class since he had to pick a topic and the person presenting the prof was a like neurophysiologist. And he looked at like inhibition work and things like that. And a Renshaw cell is some, I think it's a cell that inhibits 
an inhibitory cell. So it's like a double negative so type you want thing. Them, you want them to not get in. Like if, if you have more of them or if they're more active, then you're getting less of the inhibitory response. Yeah. So if we think about like movement velocity, right? And you want some muscles to be very active to help you move. And then you want other muscles to be unactive so that they don't create resistance in the movement. So the Renshaw cell, it's it, someone who knows physiology really well is going to tear me to shreds on that because I forget exactly how it works. But there was some sort of process with that when he talked about it in the seminar class. I was like, oh, well, if we could reduce the effect of that inhibition so we get more of the inhibition that we want and less of the inhibition that we don't want, that potentially could lead to a faster movement. And both Yuri and Natalia Verkashansky, I've seen work where they, they discuss the Renshaw cells and some of the adaptations that you, you get from this plyometric training because there's cycles of times where things need to be relaxed and cycles of times where muscles need to be tense and producing contraction. So you get this learning or practice effect of this rebound activity of timing the inhibition in a better way. So that way when you, it's active when you need the pretension, but then it's not active when you need the ability to relax and just like float and project off the ground into the air. So again, I've probably butchered that in some way, but I know there, there's some stuff I've read on the Renshaw cells that they play a role in terms of helping us with the like inhibitory aspects of plyometric training, but it was some, yeah, confusing, like double negative inhibits inhibitory. I've looked at the diagrams and like, this doesn't make sense to me, but if plyometric training helps with this neural pathway, that's all I need to know. Done. It's good. good enough. Good enough. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense though. I mean, I don't understand. I, I think I saw something about Renshaw cells. I don't understand them either, but the idea that it helps with the whole inhibition where you want it, the ability to relax and contract intentionally and quickly big time on board with that. It, it, I think it just comes with like the whole free fall aspect of it where like you just, you can't be tense. Like you have nothing to be tense against. So you know what I mean? There's, yeah, I'm just purely. You don't want out. to drop like a stone. It's not like you drop off the box and just like squeeze everything as hard as you can. Yeah, you'll never. Like you want some things to be active. Like you talked about like the foot and the ankle because you want to yeah. be prepared. But other things need to be relaxed in order to mm-hmm. create that tension and even more so on takeoff. Mm-hmm. Because you want certain structures of the body to be active to help push you yeah. in the direction you're going. And you want other parts of the body to be inactive mm-hmm. so they don't slow you down yeah and I, I think with certain athletes like that just don't understand how to do that then like sometimes um like i've had it with people that if they don't understand really where their like rib position is or their spine position that like before i can tell them to do anything it's just like okay first of all put your chest up that's easy this is extension put your chest down that's flexion slash pretty close to neutral. Now you understand how to move your ribs and chest and spine. Now we can move on to stuff. And people that I think they just have never relaxed really when they're doing something, 
like showing them something like this where you have to, like you can't not relax, then it's like, now I get it. You know, so from a, like a conscious learning perspective, I think there's value there as well. I feel like you probably see that in powerlifting a lot. Everyone's just so tense and jacked up all the time because it's like, it's a sport of tension. Yes, which I mean, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. Exactly. Um, but like, as I'm working with like more athletes now, I see some, some kids that just don't know how to create any tension ever. And then some kids that can't let go of the tension. So yeah, they're just like stiff and rigid, like robots moving around doing everything. Mm-hmm. You have robots and wet noodles and that's, you're like, I need something in between. That's exactly what it looks like. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good. The the only other one that I came across was more structural um, and oh. tendon tendon stiffness, purely tendon stiffness. Um, and again, that's going to be dependent on how you're doing the activity. Like you can target more. Like I said, this uh, this one where you're trying to limit the knee flexion, more ankle activity. They had a lot more ankle or sorry, Achilles tendon stiffness than did the other group. The other group had a little bit, but it wasn't really significant. Did they do like an MRI scan or something? Was there like a, um, was there any structural change? Just out of curiosity, if they looked at that, because obviously um, like the, the tendon got stiffer, but was there like a structural change to the tendon that allowed it to be? That's just, I don't, I don't remember how they looked at it. I can, I have the paper saved so I can, uh, I can check that when we're, when we're done here or night and I can share it on the next one if that's of interest to people. Yeah. No, I'd just be curious. Like, cause when we talked like in the hypertrophy one, yeah. like the, some of the structural changes that you actually get in the architecture of mm-hmm. the tissue is kind of interesting. So I was curious to see if like, is there a structural quality in the tendon mm-hmm. that's associated with the stiffness? Yeah. I mean, that would be kind of interesting to know. That would be interesting to know. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not sure how they, how they quantified it. Um, but I would imagine like, I know the, like the fiber direction when like tendons are healthier, generally speaking, or more elastic than the fibers are going like parallel to each other versus all crisscrossy. Yeah. Um, You get like smooth lines in one direction versus like, looks like an eight year old scribbled on a piece of paper. Yeah. So if I had to guess, I would say it's, more of that um but they were also talking like i think depending on your activity you like may or may not want more stiffness um because like a you can like a stiffer tendon is going to be able to loaded with high like be loaded with more force and rebound faster um theoretically but a less stiff tendon is going to require a require less force to be loaded. Um, and you'll be able to store more elastic energy in it because it will be able to stretch more. So yeah, it's the trade-off I would imagine like more, like if you're a marathon runner, probably you would want more of the like stretchy tendon that can be, uh, it doesn't require a lot of force to stretch and you can store a lot of energy in it. Um, and if you're a sprinter, you probably want it to be very, very stiff. Um, yeah, it's like, like trying to find the happy, the happy medium, right? Like you don't yeah. want this, you don't want your springs in your body, quote unquote, to be like, have you ever had like a, ever taught, like ever had like a coil over or a spring from a car in your hands? No, I haven't. I'm like not a car the, guy. That thing is, it won't move. Like yeah. it takes the whole weight of the car to move it. So 
Yeah. If your tendon's way too stiff, like you said, you can't load it with anything, mm-hmm. right? Versus you don't want your tendon to be like a slinky. You ever seen that? The spring thing that like floats down falls. the stairs? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, fly, it's like the wet noodle of springs. Yeah. Fusilli pasta. Yeah. And so you don't <laughs> want your, your tendons to be like that because then sure you can load them and stretch them and move in all kinds of different directions, but you get no like snap back on the, mm-hmm. the energy return. So it's, that's a great point for you to bring up because you want to be somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. loose enough that the tendon can store energy, but stiff enough that it can return the energy. Mm-hmm. You don't want to yeah. be a slinky. No, it's just, you know, yeah. You don't want to be a steel cable either. No, because like then, a, yeah. yeah, you get, you, you can't load it at all. So yeah. yeah, I think that's important to, to bring up. And that kind of goes nicely into like some of the different ways and you talked about a little bit, like the ways that you can train mm-hmm. the, the plyometrics, because like some of the work that Verkashansky did initially was the jump training with like different loads. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw those diagrams a little, potentially a little bit, a little bit. Um, I, I did see a bit where they were comparing like using uh, more load at the same height or the same height or same load, sorry, but changing the height of the jump. Yeah. And then he, like they were discovering that you were getting different adaptations. So if you mm-hmm. dropped off of a one foot box with no load, the movement velocity was very high. But then if you dropped off the box with even just, five or 10 kilograms, it drastically slowed the movement. And then you were getting different adaptations because the, the time in which you were applying force was way different. So it, it was cool to kind of see, they were trying to see, okay, well, what happens if, like you said, do we change the box height? We change the weight. Does that change the outcome? And that kind of led to like three different types of plyos, let's call it. I don't really know if the last one's truly a plyo because you're probably spending too long on the ground. But if you do like body weight unloaded jump or plyometric type activities, then it really focuses on like creating adaptation in the tendon. And you get more of that elastic recoil, I think is the the word that Verkashansky used. So you can you can train for elastic recoil. You can train for the stretch reflex, which is kind of like a middle ground of you have a little bit of load. So it activates the nervous system a little bit more, but you're still spending a short enough time on the ground that you're getting the elastic recoil out of the tendon. And then you have like the pure CNS stimulus side where you're doing like a jump squat with like 30 or 40 kilograms or dropping off of a box with like a higher load like that, where it's purely going to be this voluntary, like pushing or active type activity to get the brain to, to kind of fire. So you you could potentially use different types of those uh, styles of training to get adaptations in different ways, depending on where either the sport or the activity needed you to go or based on like where the person maybe has some weaknesses. And then you want to address a certain quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did come across those three actually. Um, here, and let me see. I'll pull up my my spreadsheet quickly. Oh, you have a spreadsheet I, on this? Well, just all my notes are on the spreadsheet. So, oh, okay. Um, I thought you had yeah. like a fancy no, no. spreadsheet prepared. 
no, no, it's uh, just the notes. But um, yeah, because they did come across those three. Um, and I think I recorded more about the focus to achieve that kind of like you're talking about more like the, the heights and the loading. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the CNS activation, um, yeah, like you want to overload the eccentric was kind of the conclusion um, that I came to or that they explained um, for the stretch shortening cycle, focusing more on the timing and the rhythm of the jump. Um, like not necessarily being fast, but feeling bouncy, like you're getting the energy back from the ground. Um, and then, yeah. And then the elastic energy recoil is obviously short ground contact time. Um, yeah. Like tell somebody the floor is lava. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. just get off. Like the moment you touch down the ground, just get off the ground. Who cares yeah. how high you jump? Just get off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So those were, yeah, I guess a little bit more about how you would uh, coach them rather than load it. But Which is also great because like you said, if you get somebody dropping off a box and you told them focus on jump height, I want you to drop off the box and get as high as you possibly can. They're going to have a bit of a longer contact time. Yeah. And then they're going to jump higher. So you get more of that like CNS or uh, nervous system overload versus mm-hmm. if you tell them to just bounce off the ground immediately, like the floor is lava, then you're going to get more of the, the elastic kind of adaptation because you're going to be using the tendon more yeah. in that sense. So and it's even- great because you don't necessarily need to add load per se. You could just change how you cue some of these movements to get a different contact time to get a different end result. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the impression I get from the CNS or how they would do the CNS overload is that you still, it's more about the loading, I think, than the queuing. Um, I know like I, I do think that focusing purely on the height would give you more output. And so you probably would get like an adaptation more in that direction. Might actually get you more in the middle ground. Now that I'm thinking that, about it. That's kind of what I was yeah. was thinking as well. I, I, I like the, I heard um, like a Darian Barr talk about like the rhythm of jumping and like redirecting the momentum. So I, that's how I kind of think about, he explained it. Like the way he explained it was you, you focus on the timing of the jump so that you're pushing at the same time that the ground is pushing back against you, um, which is like, if you haven't tried to do it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but when, but when, you do I, it. when I tried to do it, it was like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool actually. Um, and I feel like that's like the rhythm of it is the stretch shortening cycle, um, versus with the CNS overload. I think it's just like jump from higher boxes, more load, like just hammer that eccentric force and speed and all that sort of stuff. Well, and even some of the, I, I think in the last episode you talked about, uh, I don't know if it's plyo and pleometrics or plyo with a Y and plyo with an I. I don't actually yeah. know how to pronounce it. I believe it was plyo with an I was the, the yeah. eccentric action, or like eccentric. It, yeah, but it. I can't remember. I don't know if it's actually pronounced like the same, but spelled differently, or if it's pronounced like pleometric. I right. no I idea, but it's spelled say. plyo with an I. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was cool to see because both Yuri and Natalia highlighted some of the work that's been done in that realm where you get to see a little bit of like the training wasn't just doing 
like the depth jumps and like the pure plyometric activities. There was a whole bunch of other stuff that led up to it hmm. that focused on, like you said, the eccentric component. So like landing <clears throat> off a box with a bunch of load to prepare yourself for the landing and pushing against immovable objects. Um, like whether it was like this leg press type swing cart thing that then you could set it up. So it didn't move and you just pressed as hard as you could into it or something like that. But there was a lot of these like plio or plyo with a, an eye exercises that they did prior to this stuff, which was mostly eccentric and isometric based, which like you said, is going to lead to that nervous system overload. It's going to get the brain to, to really have to be active and be in that like high threat level, mm -hmm. which I think in this case, maybe if we're talking about, are you training the elastic recoil? Are you training the stretch reflex? Are you training the nervous system? It's probably like you said, more of these activities that are nervous system and a longer contact death jump would be maybe more stretch reflex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a long, a long contact depth jump is not that long anyway. So yeah. Compared to an isometric action or uh, an eccentric landing, right? Where well, just even, even other types of jumps that are more concentric based. But yeah. Yeah. No, I got you. That's uh, yeah, that's good. Um, and I mean the other, like there's a lot of ways that you can modify these things too. Um, but having those three in mind, I'm actually just, I thought I had just now um, because we've talked a lot about the contact time as being very important and you want to, probably like whatever the activity you're trying to improve, you want to get close at least to that contact time with your plyometric activities. Um, and I'm thinking that it, it's not about the contact time. It's more about like these, well, it is, it has to be more about these adaptations and probably like in sprint performance, the CNS overload is not going to be as important, I would guess. Like it would be very important um, as you're coming out of the blocks, which is going to be more of a strength focused activity. Um, and the stretch reflex is going to be important as well for sure. But the elasticity is going to be the most important thing as it's a very short contact time activity versus um, like a longer contact time. Um, like a high jump would be kind of in the middle, I think. And I haven't found any like really solid numbers on like a volleyball jump, but I think it's somewhere in like the two thirty millisecond range. Yeah. So it starts to go above that. Yeah. Which would be more like CNS stretch reflex and less elasticity. Um, I think. Yeah. Cause you get more of that. You get more time to like load, like yeah. actively, actively load the movement rather than like passively load the movement through some sort of a free fall. Yeah. Which I mean, they're like, the last two steps, I mean, it depends how you do it, but the higher level jumpers, the last, the last two steps are like a long, it's almost like a broad jump into a vertical jump. It's like a one, two, so it's not quite, um, but it's not the same free fall. Cause they're, they're also loading like heel first heel through to midfoot and then jumping off of that. It's not like, like your midfoot striking and then bouncing, you know, like it is in a sprint. Yeah, well, and, they, and in sport, especially something like volleyball, because you have a set play, it would be more about getting the height that you need yeah. 
to be able to attack the ball to put it in the opponent's court wherever it is. Like there's no time constraints on the offensive side. Defensively, you have to react in a short period of time. But offensively, yeah. if I want to take an extra couple of milliseconds to jump higher in a volleyball spike, I'm afforded that. T- that just means I have to change the timing with my setter and when the ball's coming up and mm-hmm. whatever. But it's not like, oh, you didn't perform that spike jump in less than two milliseconds. That point doesn't count. Yeah, like, that's right. That doesn't exist. That's right. And the only um, time you do have like the speed dependence, it's more of like a counter movement, like rate of force development jump anyway. It's still not elastic. So. Yeah. And so, and that's where you see like in track and field hurdles and sprint contact times are very small Yeah, because it's time dependent Yep. versus long jump, triple jump, high jump tend to be on the, the longer end because there's no time constraints around the, the event. Mm-hmm. Well, besides you have a minute 30 to do your jump or whatever, I think by the right. time the official says you can go, but if I spend a little longer on the ground because I have to clear the bar, jump higher into the pit, mm-hmm. the officials don't then say, oh, yeah, that doesn't count. Yeah. You were off the ground in too long a time frame. Yeah. So then in those activities, you're just sort of you're trying to balance the amount of like speed and energy you already have with the amount of like force you can like produce and also like load up and use in that amount of time that you're on the ground without losing so much of that energy you already had going into that contact. Exactly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the balance of the two. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it's nice because I, when you read that stuff, it gives you an idea of how to like, maybe start to think about how to classify the exercises or organize your training. Right. It's not just like, Oh, we have depth jumps and that's it. Like there's, there's things that you can do leading up to those more springy and reactive activities to prepare you. Like it's, it's more than just one, like training for plyometrics is almost more of a, like a, a periodized plan or, mm. or a process as opposed to it is like when we talked about hypertrophy, it's kind of like it exists in one place within your training, right? Like it's all, we're going to dabble in some hypertrophy work, but there's, not like, oh, we need to do A, B, and C to prepare ourselves to do some loading mm. to failure or whatever is where like I gotcha. the plyos, it's nice that it's highlighted in this way because you go, yeah, I need to make sure I've done some eccentric loading and probably have decent isometric ability. And I've worked on some of these other things prior to getting into it to make it more effective mm-hmm. as yeah. opposed to just, oh, I'm going to drop plyometrics uh, here in my program. Done. Yeah. Well, and, and like some of the research that I came across too, like you can do, uh, like you'll still get benefits out of plyometrics, you know, if you haven't, I mean, maybe, well, maybe not actually the plyometrics that we're talking about, you'll get benefits from like jump training, um, and speed training, you know, without having done these things. But if we're talking about like the true shock method, plyometric depth jump type stuff, then it is beneficial you'll get more out of it if you have done some eccentric loading and some isometric stuff and like just strength work beforehand um to yeah develop more output more um yeah like contractile ability um because like we've talked about if you're a wet noodle hitting the ground like you're just gonna splat and you're not gonna bounce yeah exactly just yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> splat. That's a great way of putting it. Just yeah. done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it is good to keep those in mind. Um, and then I guess like the, the study that I was talking about before with the focusing more on the ankle or more on the knee, um, that just kind of shows that you can direct those adaptations where you want them to go. Like what we talked about with track, obviously, especially if you're um, more of a, like a longer sprint, like a 200, 300, 400, that's going to be more like a lot more dependent on your upright ability as opposed to the acceleration Uh, compared to like a 60 is going to be more dependent on your acceleration um, which I imagine is more knee dominant than it is ankle dominant or uh, more in that direction than like a 200 or a 300 would be more ankle dominant percentage wise ratio wise in this like in the sense that I mean, depending on how good somebody is, the 60 meter could be just a race where they accelerate the entire time. Yeah. Like someone like Bolt, he's been recorded as hitting top speed at 60, 70 meters into the race. So if he has mm-hmm. a good run, it's possible he doesn't actually slow down at all in the 60. Mm-hmm. He just keeps building, 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 and never actually. Mm-hmm. So the whole race is acceleration versus yeah. 200 at some point the velocity is going to start to come down. And like you said, you get that up, up and down. So the percentage of the race, which makes up acceleration, like you said, the longer the race goes, the smaller percentage acceleration makes up Mm -hmm. that race. And yeah, the more dependent you probably are on your upright ability Mm -hmm. to run because you can Mm -hmm. compensate for it if it's a small part of the race. Mm. Um, So I would imagine like, somebody that is more dependent on their upright ability. That's a better way of saying it than how I said it um, would benefit more from doing more plyos focused around the ankle and stiffness in that area um, versus a person who's more dependent on their acceleration would proportionally get more benefit. Like they might, they would probably still get more benefit out of the ankle focusing on that because it is a very short contact time still, but um they would benefit, I think, more than the upright person in spending time doing knee dominant uh, plyos and focusing the adaptations in that area compared to, and then even more so with like a volleyball jump, which is a lot more knee dominant, I think. Um, so you would benefit even more from focusing your efforts on that uh, stretch shortening cycle around the knee rather than the ankle. Um, yeah. And, and that's one of the takeaways that you can get from like the way that this shock method has been laid out where exactly like you just described, okay, what's the sport? Who's the athlete? What am I dealing with? Oh, I need a little bit more of the, the nervous system focus because it's a longer contact time. So they have more time to apply force. That's probably going to help me versus, yeah, I'm working with a hurdler and they're on and off the ground in the blink of an eye. So I need to really focus more on the elastic recoil and, and that type of stuff. So I think, yeah, that does a great job highlighting that you not all plyos, even that are, you know, plyos are necessarily the same. There's a way that you can do it a little bit differently to, to chase those different adaptations. And those adaptations will depend on your sport and your activity. Mm-hmm. But 
like you said, you don't just necessarily depth jump everybody and see improvement. You may want to do things a little bit differently or make a tweak here or there, depending on, on what activity the person's actually going to do within their yeah. sport. Or at least like you tailored the coaching of the depth jump to, to, to that, that kind of activity. Um, it's not a one um, size fits all. That's right. Um, I've also really been enjoying like combining different types of jumps um, to practice like the skill of redirecting force in different directions and things like that. Like I, one of my favorites is like a broad jump into a vertical jump and then into broad vertical. So like you're, you don't have as much impact as you would from a depth jump because like you're probably not getting as high as the height that you're falling off of. Yeah. Um, but landing from a broad jump is an impact and then redirecting that into a vertical and practicing. Yeah. Just redirecting that force and like using your momentum and, and putting it in different directions. I think um, a is a lot of fun and B like, it's a good skill to have. Cause that's all like, that's what sports are is you use the energy you have to do the things you need to do. Um, and like, you're getting a lot of, positive adaptation from it depending again on on the sport like if it's a longer it's going to take more time on the ground to do those things mm -hmm. um it's going to be more strength dependent to do those things um but yeah it's just another another thing that i uh have been playing with and it's i see value in it anyway and it's it's fun um and just purely the direction of force that you apply uh is also another thing that you can change with with these things too yeah you're just taking the 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 concept mm -hmm. of oh dropping on the ground and jumping up where oh i could drop on the ground and jump to the side and then jump forward or like you said jump forward and then jump up or mm -hmm. it, it's all the same ability mm. in the sense that you're rebounding off the ground in some direction i imagine they kept it vertical in terms of like the work that Dr. Verkashansky did back in the sixties and seventies. I imagine they kept it vertical a, because he was working with a lot of vertical jumpers, but then also B it was probably easier to measure that way. Cause it was consistent. Like the height of the box was measurable. The load was measurable. They were always dropping down and then jumping straight up. So you probably wanted some level of consistency yep. because it was a, it was research work. So you needed, if you had people starting bouncing in different directions, it'd be, more challenging to learn like the underlying concepts with so many changing variables. But I bet you now you could find more work on like elastic recoil and things like that in terms of changing direction on the jump. Mm. Like you said, a, a vertical to forward or a vertical to the side or forward to lateral, something like that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It, it's definitely much easier to measure. Um, actually like earlier this week was the first time that I had anybody do like a depth jump into like a, like jump off the box and then into a broad jump instead of a vertical jump. Yeah. Um, and like you can skew your results so much by just pushing a little bit further forward off of the box. Oh you know? yeah. Like you, you, you would need to almost go back and like take like a, like if you had like markers on the ground and then, Oh, this is where you started. This is where you, but even still you're carrying more forward momentum into it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a nightmare that way. But, um, but yeah. And the other thing too, is the more uh, from what, from what I've seen anyway, 
um, the more vertical, the shorter the contact time. Um, like a continuous, like a, a depth jump, uh, vertical depth jump is going to be a shorter contact time than a drop off a box into a broad jump. Broad, exactly. Yeah. Um, continuous broad jumps are longer contact times than continuous vertical jumps. Um, yeah. And even like if you're doing the broad to vertical to broad to vertical continuous that way, the transition from landing the vertical into a broad is longer than broad into a vertical. Yeah. So. And, and again, that plays right into the, what are you trying to train? Yeah. And some of the ways that now that the initial work has been done with some of the research, like you said, now it's like, oh, it's easier to, okay, this is a little longer. This is a little shorter. Mm-hmm. So that fits in here. That fits in there. Mm-hmm. But so that's why I imagine they only did this stuff vertically because they're actually trying to measure yeah. and they needed well, consistency to get the results. That's and now we can mess around with it and do different stuff. Yeah. We, to the best of our current knowledge, we know what's going on. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's the, I'm sure that's the number one, but I remember you talking about too, like the contact time was very important for him and like the impact was very important for him. So I imagine that the, well, I mean, it, it was, it was all for, about the contact time. They were trying yeah. to find training that mimicked the contact time in the sport. That's ultimately yeah. what it, from so, what I understand that mm-hmm. like, that was the big driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it worked out. It worked yeah. out pretty good. I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad they did it. Yeah. Um, man, that was a lot of fun. I'm pumped for the next one. We're still we going to talk three. about music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but part three is going to be good. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Even just like I, I was explaining to you at the beginning of this that I like, I know, you know, more about this stuff than I know. Um, and I'm just kind of getting into it. So I was like excited to kind of learn more about this stuff, but even just having a conversation about it, like everything that I knew before is clearer in my head now, which is nice. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah. I'm enjoying, like, I guess we kind of stumbled on this by accident, like the whole, yeah. like, let's do a three-parter on something. Like it just kind of happened one time and it's like, Oh, yeah. all right, we'll do that again. Yeah. But like, I'm enjoying these three-parters where we kind of like dive yes. into some different stuff and yeah, like it's, it's a lot of fun and it's something I normally wouldn't do otherwise. So I think it's good either to go back and review some stuff that you haven't looked at in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'd say most of the stuff I've done for this is a little bit more going back and reviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I've gotten away from a lot of this stuff, even like, at Waterloo, we did a lot of this type of stuff. And I do less of it now. And I'm like, ah, oh, I maybe shouldn't have got away from, mm. from some of that stuff. So this was more review is where like the hypertrophy one was a lot more like, you know, let's explore some stuff that I haven't looked at. So yeah. I'm enjoying these three-parters personally. Oh, yeah. I'm, me I'm too. enjoying them. So It's just, yeah, like I, like I said, I've been in the powerlifting world for a long time, now trying to get more into the athletics. So it's it's nice additional motivation or like focused motivation to like, let's learn this now instead of like, let's try to learn anything, everything about, you know, team sport athletes, just focus. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, also a lot of fun to talk about music. Oh, always fun. Um, and it has been a while. It has been. So you probably have a whole bunch of stuff loaded up. Uh, You're probably well, sitting I- on too much to share. Well, I mean, you know, I'll probably only share one thing so that I can save other ones for, yeah. for later. <laughs> Especially um, if the the window of recording here is maybe narrower a little than bit, the last yeah. time, then yeah, you might want to hold on to something. Well, actually I have, uh, I've only been listening to one thing really. 
um, since we last talked and it was your, uh, on your prompting the, I listened to the pop punk powerhouse playlist on Spotify. Did you like it? I did like it. I didn't like everything on there, but I did. I did like it. It's a mixed bag, but generally it's pretty good. It's generally it's pretty good. And it, uh, it motivated me to compile my own pop punk playlist. Oh, nice. So then that's what I've been listening to. And that's just, I feel like I've been like training for this now for the last like few months. Cause it's, <laughs> it's like, it's machine gun Kelly. It's simple plan. And then it's a bunch of like the, some of the old Madden soundtrack songs. Um, so it's, it's been a good time to, to listen to that stuff. Yeah. The pop punk powerhouse playlist on Spotify is like a big throwback. Like you yeah. get like some good Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, some 41, like yeah. some bands that you're like, just a few songs. You're like, yeah, okay. You know what? This isn't a, th- this isn't a bad tune. This is kind of fun. I can, yeah. I can jam along to this. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then I was driving with my brother yesterday and like listen to some of his music and that like re-inspired me. So I have, I have a new, uh, yeah, a new inspiration to listen to. You're just on a musical journey right now. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a normal thing for me to be listening to music all the time. So it is, it's nice I'm when still the inspiration you, actually comes. Yeah. I'm still Thank you. you. Thank you. What have you been listening to, buddy? Uh, I had a recommendation from a listener. Oh. Uh, who I will, they, I, don't think they wanted me to say their name. If you did, let me know. I'll say your name next time. Um, but they had sent me a tune. We got into a, a, a little like banter about songs of summer. And I said that okay. the greatest song of summer, I think that was ever written, was Get Lucky by Daft Punk, Pharrell Williams, and Nile Rodgers from summer 2013. I said that's okay. probably the greatest song of summer ever okay. written. But apparently... Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke and Pharrell that summer was more popular. So I guess it can't be the song, song of summer, whatever. So mm. that sort of debate led to, they sent me a song from 2017 by a band called, an Australian band called Parcels. Um, and this song called Overnight was actually produced by Daft Punk. Mm. And dude, this song is so funky. It's so catchy. Mm. It, it sounds like a song that belonged on Daft Punk's last album that they put out from that okay. summer of 2013. Like it, sure. I heard the first like two or three notes. And I was like, oh, Daft Punk 100% produced this song. Hmm. It was so catchy. And then so I started listening to some of the other stuff by, by them. And they have this kind of like old school space funk disco kind of feel to them. Like they're a modern band. They're making songs now, but they should have been dropped in like the seventies or something like that. Mm, that's it, cool. It's really funky. It's really catchy. And I'm enjoying listening to a lot of that stuff right now. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I will say that like one of my current like songs that I'm obsessed with is summer paradise by simple plan, which is like a nice, it's not, it's not nearly the same genre, but it's like a nice vibe. Um, just that you're mentioning summer anthems. Um, and there is a podcast that I've listened. It's a comedy podcast. Uh, the no joke podcast is what it's called. Um, and they have a couple of episodes where they go over uh, like some of the most popular summer anthems or they go through year by year. What are the summer anthems and just talk about like what they remember about that song Some, being yeah. around or whatever. Um, I can't remember exactly how they do it, but that's, that's a fun one too. If you're, 
in a debate, I guess you get another opinion there. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I was glad I found like that they shared the song with me because then I started listening to their other stuff. Mm -hmm. All their other stuff isn't produced by Daft Punk. So to me, it doesn't sound quite as good, Mm -hmm. but it's still really catchy, really funky. And like, I have no problem listening to it. So it's worth checking out. Yeah. Right on. That was, uh, yeah, that was a good one, man. We're Um, having fun with this. Yeah. I'm having fun with this and I want to speak on your behalf. Well, I'm, I'm having fun with it too. And I'm excited. I feel like to be back in the rhythm of doing it again. Uh, cause we were kind of like hit and miss here. For yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I'm glad that we're, we're back in the shop. Yeah. So yeah. If anybody's got any questions, um, or comments or wants to rip us apart because we don't know what the shock method is or neurofizz or whatever. Renshaw uh, cells. Renshaw cells. Let us know on Instagram, speed strength show, speed strength performance or Braden Southern. And we will, I don't know, wilt at your knowledge or have a witty retort, something like that. Um, yeah. And until then, that was the speed strength show. Thanks for coming along world. We'll see you next time. Peace.